Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would be with us now. Open our ears and open our minds that we would understand what your Holy Spirit would say to us. We thank you for Christ, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for your plan for us. Be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, to prove that I'm a procrastinator, I've known that I'm going to be get, beginning communion meditations regularly for quite a long time now, and yet I still hadn't, as of last Sunday, known what my series would be. I'd been kicking around ideas for months and just couldn't decide. But uh, I decided, and so the uh, series that I'm beginning is The Suffering Servant. So it begins in Isaiah 52 and it continues through Isaiah 53. But So I hope for the next three a little more than three months maybe, uh, to go over and, and uh, go with, through this with you. And yet today, uh, the suffering servant is, is the uh, uh, Isaiah 53 in the last few verses of 52. And the emphasis really is upon suffering. And so as we talk the next few weeks and months, I'll actually draw out all kinds of points that Isaiah makes about uh, Jesus being our suffering Messiah, our suffering servant. And yet, for this one, I wanted to begin with the noun. The modifier is suffering, and yet the noun is servant. And so I think it's best that we begin by baselining what it is that when we talk about Jesus being a servant, what is it that we're talking about? Now, uh, I think the best example is to give you an example of how Christianity turned this on its head. And that example is in Matthew 20. In Matthew 20, starting at verse 20, we, and I'll read a little bit. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers but Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the mother of James and John Zebedee, uh, two men that Jesus admittedly were favorites of his, uh, of his apostles. And his mother recognized this. And so she came to Jesus and said, I want this favor. I would like these, my boys to be on either side of you. 
And this is audacious, and that's exactly what the other apostles felt. This is audacious. But in our world, this is sometimes how you get what you want, right? You can't expect people to read your minds. This is what I'm always asking my wife to do, to tell me what she wants instead of expecting me to always know what she wants. So we do need to communicate our desires to other people. And that's what Mrs. Zebedee did. She communicated her desire to Jesus that her sons be honored. And what's the phrase? It doesn't hurt to ask, right? Well, sometimes apparently it does hurt to ask because the other 10 got very indignant at what they had heard about this. So the question I ask you, though, is this. Why were the other 10 indignant? Why were they greatly displeased by this request that Mrs. Zebedee made? I would suggest to you that it wasn't because they felt it was improper for her to ask that. They were the collective, right? There are these 12 apostles. They're kind of all equal in a sense. And here these two were asking for a special privilege. But yet, wouldn't it be more reasonable to infer that the reason that they got indignant is not necessarily that they wanted that privilege, but that they just resented the fact that someone else would want it so badly to ask about it and to do this, to, to step out of the, the ranks, let's say, of the 12. So the question I have is, were they also themselves more indignant because their own reputations, their own egos were not being stroked in this? Is that part of the indignation they felt? Were they really offended for God or were they offended for themselves? And I believe they were probably offended for themselves, not for God. They didn't realize that, that God would be offended by this because Jesus is turning everything upside down. And so that's why I begin here with the suffering servant, because we must begin with the Christian view of leading. There is now in the Christian texts, you can find servant leaders. And so you find books that speak about leading as Jesus did, leaving, leading as a servant. And that's antithetical to our culture. And for, for many years as a Christian, I really had kind of expected to live out this, the, the antithesis, in my secular job. And yet what I realized is that just as I ex explained with my wife, I do sometimes have to tell my boss what I would like, what I want. He's not God. He can't read my mind. He can't know my thoughts. So with God, I can rely wholly upon him for that. But with everybody, every other human on earth, I need to interact through communication. So I need to make clear to them. So if I do want something from my boss, even if I do feel that it's an honor that I want, I can't ask for it. But here we see within the kingdom of heaven how different it is from the kingdoms of earth and how the earth structures all of these things. Now, that's, I titled Seeking Honor, where these uh, disciples, Mrs. Zebedee and all the others, they were seeking honor. They were seeking to be honored. This is not necessarily a bad thing, but they were seeking a privilege of honor that was kind of above their station, going a little bit further than perhaps what was warranted. But let me uh, introduce this uh, concept of servant, and not just suffering servant, but just servant generally. In the text that I read, 
in 52:13, it, it starts out like this. And in the New King James, it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and my servant are both upcased. So my, that's God the Father, M, capital upcase M, and then servant S, that's Jesus. So again, upcase, referring to a, a role that is uh, pertaining to God and his deity. Now that term, my servant, is actually introduced by Isaiah in Isaiah 42. And I want to turn there just to talk a little bit about what this term means, my servant. So in Isaiah 42, we read this. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So right here where my servant God is introducing Christ in this role of serving him on this earth he introduces him as my servant and he says, behold, my servant whom I uphold. So in other words, God the Father fully supports Christ in this role as servant. Christ is performing this function, this role for his father. And so he has his father's backing, his, his support and his strength. And so Christ knows this. Christ is God himself. And so he knows that he has the full support of his father. And then he says, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, for the Jewish religion being so focused on the Jews as it was, it's interesting how often the prophecies, especially in Isaiah, regard the Gentiles, that they will be brought in. The world is too uh, large and Judaism too small for all of God's love and goodness to remain on this one little nation for long. And so there's always in Isaiah this tension of the fact that, that this promise of God will be opened up to all the earth. Now the next reference to my servant is in 49.5. So starting reading at 49.5, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. I want to point out two phrases here. One is in verse 5, and it says, there's this parenthetical uh, expression there. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. It's as if Jesus is having to express this. He can't contain himself, and it's being shared right there as the prophecy is being unfolded. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. It shows the 
eventual glory that Christ will have for having accomplished all that what God has for him to do on the earth. And Jesus is looking forward to that with anticipation. He wants that. He wants it as badly as the Father does. And it's in obedience to him. And then he says, again, my God shall be my strength. Remember in, in 42, I shall uphold you. And here he says, my God shall be my strength. There's just total confidence that God is behind him. And the next one and the last one is in Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50 verses 5 through 10. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I do not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. So this then is a rhetorical question asking, who obeys the voice of my servant? And so this is God the Father calling out to the earth, saying, you people don't know what you are going to do to my son. But I know, and I'm going to do it anyway. My plan will be carried out, and I will accomplish this. And yet, he, he, he can't help but put here in Isaiah this prophetical statement about, you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know who my servant is, who my son is. And yet, he will accomplish all that is in my mind. And so, again, I want to point out, though, two verses where this is emphasized, where Christ's dependence upon God is the focus. And at the start of verse 7, he says, For the Lord God will help me. And then at the start of verse 9, surely the Lord God will help me. So Jesus honored his father through his work on the earth. And what's also very true about all of this, and I want you to keep this in mind as we go through this, all of what I'm speaking of Jesus, nearly all of it as for what his responsibilities were, are now our responsibilities. So we are in this position that God is calling to us and promising us this support, just as he did for Christ. So we follow in Christ's footsteps. He's our older brother, and we owe God this allegiance, this servanthood following. The text says in 1 Corinthians 2, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the hearts of man what God has in store for us. So we don't know as clearly as Christ did what awaits us beyond the grave, what awaits us in heaven. But Christ knew and he conveyed that to his disciples as clearly as he could using words which are admittedly weak and unable to do that as well as we would like. Now, Jesus was referred to by God the Father as my servant. And when God asked Satan about Job, he referred to Job as 
my servant. He said, have you considered my servant, Job? To be called God's servant is a high honor. It should be our desire to be used by God, to be used up by God. There is a saying that's popular in our culture among young people uh, to uh, live hard, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. That's how the world views life, right? They consume it on themselves. They consume it on their lusts and on their pleasures. And yet, really, there is a Christian corollary to that. Uh, Live hard. Die whenever God wants you to. But yet, live for God. It's all about God, whereas in that former phrase, it's all about us. It's all about us as individuals, us as unique people who we think we want to please ourselves above all things. And yet in reality, we live for God. We only exist at his pleasure. And so we exist to be obedient to him. And yet he promises us so much. And we'll get into that, especially next week, actually. That'll be the, uh, the week where we'll talk at probably most about that, what, what awaits us. Now, as we come to the Lord's table, uh, we must renew our commitment to be servants in the footsteps of Christ, to want to follow after him and do all that he did. He said in this text that I quoted that, that I will be spit upon, I will be shamed, but yet I will not be ashamed. Do you see the difference there? There's a huge difference between people treating you in a shameful way and you being ashamed of that treatment. We must recognize that as Christians, we are not highly honored, especially in our day. But yet, let's not shy away from being seen as Christians. We are Christ's body on the earth, here to endure the afflictions that the world wants to convey upon Christ himself. So we do that for him. Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for your presence with us, uh, for having uh, entered into our hearts at some point to cleanse us of sin, uh, to to, uh, clarify for us what we are, who we are, why we exist, what you want us to do. And I pray, Father, for everyone here, uh, for everyone represented uh, through Dominion, uh, that you would enter into their minds and hearts, uh, enter into their homes, and allow them to analyze their lives, to see where it is that they are behaving as servants and should continue, and where it is that they're not, uh, where it is that worldliness has crept in, and an inability to serve you has caused them to lower their expectations and their goals on the earth. We ask you now, Lord, to be with us. We ask you to bless this food and and, uh, this wine and crackers uh, to our bodies because we know that you love us and you provide for us and that you will always provide for us. We give you thanks, Father, for all of these blessings. In the dear name of your Son, Jesus, amen.